Welcome to the Hope in the Hard Times sermon series. I preached this series of messages back in 2012 at the Metropolitan Bible Church, shortly after I'd gone through treatments for cancer. Now in 2020, as we face hard times related to the coronavirus, we at Heritage College and Seminary are re-releasing the sermon set, along with a companion study guide. As you dig deeper into God's Word, you will receive hope in the hard times. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. You recognize any of that? Those are some of the opening lines from Charles Dickens' classic book, A Tale of Two Cities, right? A story set in two cities, Paris and France. A story that kind of is built around some of the heroic and some of the horrific things that happened around the time of the French Revolution. So it depicts, as it were, the best of times and the worst of times in a hard time of the history of France. But as I was thinking about those, those opening lines, best of times, worst of times, season of light, season of darkness, spring of hope, winter of despair, it hit me that those same lines could kind of be applied to some of the hard times that we live through personally. I mean, sometimes our little world gets turned upside down. Sometimes we go through a small-scale revolution in our personal lives. Sometimes we enter into hard times. Could be a health crisis. Could be a problem in the family. Could be a relational rift. Could be a financial reversal. Could be a number of things. But when those kind of hard times come our way, it's very, very easy for us to see them as the worst of times, right? As the season of darkness, as the winter of despair. But what we may not recognize is that those same times could also be the best of times. They could also end up being the season of light, the spring of hope. And not just for us but also for those around us who need to see the light and who need to feel the hope. We're in a series here at the Met on Sunday mornings called Hope in the Hard Times. And we're looking at some of the hopeful ways that God uses hard times in our lives. And today we're going to discover that when hard times come into our lives, God has an agenda, a bigger plan, not only not only to work in us, which is part of what he's doing in hard times, but get this, he also wants to work through us in the middle of hard times. In other words, he not only wants to bring hope to us, he wants to help us in the middle of those hard times to be bringing hope to others. In other words, he wants to work powerfully through our lives in the worst of times. Now, that's a lesson that has come clear to me over these last months. In fact, I would say it's one of the bigger surprises that kind of has come my way over these last months as I've been on this journey through cancer. You see, when I, when I was kind of diagnosed and starting to go through this, I thought, I hoped that maybe on the far side of this, 
once I go through it all, perhaps God could use me in some way because of it, because of the experience. But what I didn't figure out was that God had a plan to not only just wait till the far side when I was done going through it, but that he had something for me to do while I was going through it. You see, I thought that maybe if, if I kind of got through this thing and maybe I got back on my feet, then I might be more useful to him. But what surprised me is that he said, I can use you even when you're flat on your back. I can use you in the worst of times. Now, that shouldn't really have been a surprise to me because Jesus taught his, his disciples that same lesson 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, at the very worst of times, when the disciples of Jesus were feeling extremely useless, Jesus commissioned them to be extremely useful. At the worst of times for the disciples, when they were, when they were tempted to turn inward, Jesus commissions them to move outward. At the very worst of times for these first disciples, when they were stuck in misery, Jesus calls them to step out in mission. And this morning, we're going to see that he does the same thing for us. Even at the worst of times. See, at the worst of times, we're thinking just about survival. But God actually has a plan that's bigger than that. It's a plan that could bring hope not only to our lives, but to those around us. And we're going to discover that today as we look at a passage in the New Testament where the disciples learn that lesson. The passage I'm referencing is found in the last chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24. So would you take a Bible, please, and join me in Luke 24. I usually mention here that there are some Bibles here in the sanctuary, hopefully within arm's, length, arm's reach of you, and also over in our fellowship hall. And if you take one of the blue Bibles and turn to page 749, 749, you'll be in Luke chapter 24. Today I want to talk to you from this passage about how God meets us in our hard times and moves us from misery to mission. From misery to mission. That God has a plan, even in the midst of the worst of times, that can turn them into some of the best of times. From misery to mission. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at the passage where Jesus helps his disciples move from misery to mission. We're going to pray that he'll help us do the same. Father, some of us here today come in heavy laden with things on our hearts that weigh us down and often, Lord, cause us to feel either sidelined or, or perhaps uh, forgotten or useless or self-focused. Lord, you know we have a tendency just to turn inward. And I'm asking today that you will help us to see the bigger picture that you have when in the middle of our misery you call us to mission. And somehow you use that very misery for the sake of your mission. I'm praying that you will do that in the hearts and lives of my brothers and sisters today, even as I sense you are doing that in my heart today. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 24 is kind of one of those best of times, worst of times passages in the Bible. It actually starts out in the worst of times. Verse 1 tells us that on the very first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women 
took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. This is on the first Easter sunrise morning. And the women go there. It's the worst of times. They're bringing spices to do what they think will be an honor to Jesus. He's been crucified. He's in a tomb. And they are coming to anoint or prepare his body with these spices. And their hearts are crushed. Their hearts are broken. They had lived through the worst of all times. They had seen Jesus be condemned and crucified and buried. It was the worst of times. But suddenly it moves from the worst of times to the best of times. Verse 2 tells us that when they come to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away. And when they enter, verse 3 says, they don't find Jesus' body. Instead, they are met by an angel who tells them, he's not here, he is risen as he said. Suddenly, hope is raised, it's resurrected, and the women go back to meet with the other disciples to tell them the good news. The only problem is, is that the other disciples are slow to believe. In fact, look at verse 11. It says, but they, speaking of the, the 11, Judas is now gone, the 11 plus some others who were with them, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So the disciples hear the story from the women, but they're just not buying it. They're saying, I don't think so. It seems like nonsense, impossible. Verse 12 tells us that Peter gets up and runs to the tomb, looks inside, and look at how verse 12 ends. It says, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. So Peter sees an empty tomb, but he's not convinced. He's just confused. Well, if you go down to verse 36, you find out what happens that evening. This is Easter Sunday night. The disciples are gathered together in a room, and Jesus appears to them. Look at verse 36, please. It says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. So Jesus appears to the disciples who are locked away in a room, and he convinces them that he is truly alive, that he's been resurrected. He's not just a ghost. He's not an apparition. He's not a, a spirit. He has flesh and bones. He has a resurrected body. He has them touch his hands, his feet, and then he asks for some food. Why does he do that? Well, for one reason, to show him that he was physically alive, that he can still eat. So he convinces them, but here's where it gets interesting. After he convinces them, he commissions them. He says, now I have a mission for you to do. You pick that up in verse 44 and following. Look at verse 44. So after he eats in their presence, verse 43, verse 44 says, He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. 
and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send to you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. In those verses, Jesus commissions his disciples. He gives them a mission that is built around a message, a message about him. Now, here's the part you need to hear. The same mission Jesus gave to them has been passed down to us. Like if you are a follower of Jesus today, you are about to hear in these words, your mission. This is not like someone else's mission. If you're a Christian, this is your mission. This is my mission. And this morning, I'd like to show you in these verses five things you need to know about your mission. Five things you want to be very clear about when it comes to your mission. The mission first given to them, now passed on to you and to me. So let's go through those verses, specifically verses 46 to 49. And let me show you five things about our mission that we got to know. For starters, for starters, what we can say is that our mission was first given in hard times. One thing you want to know is that our mission was first given in hard times. It was originally given in the worst of times. Not in the best of times, but in the worst of times. Our mission was first given in hard times. Now, it's important for us to remember the original setting of Jesus' words here in verses 45 to 49. Got to remember the original setting. Think about it. It was the worst of times. Just a few days before Jesus spoke these words, he had been crucified. Like, this is Sunday night. Well, it was just Friday afternoon that he was hanging on a cross. So what that meant was at this time when Jesus gives the mission, think about it. All the Jewish authorities are against Jesus, right? They had, they had recently said he's a blasphemer, and they had condemned him to death. So all the Jewish authorities are against Jesus. How about the crowds in Jerusalem? Well, they're against Jesus. By and large, do you remember how they were kind of whipped up into a frenzy and they shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. So you got a lot of people that are against Jesus. And then you have the Roman government and the soldiers, the ones that killed him. They're against Jesus. In other words, at this moment, there is zero tolerance for Jesus and his movement. And the disciples know that. They understand that this is a very delicate and difficult time. John chapter 20, verse 19, tells us that they're locked in a room. Like they're meeting in a room, Luke tells us. John adds that the room was locked out of fear for the Jews. Like they're, they're afraid for their life. Now, into that setting, into that context, Jesus comes and says, I have a mission for you to do. I'm sending you out. Don't you think we could forgive them if they were to have said to Jesus, Jesus, this is not a real good time for that mission. Might be a real good mission. It's just not a real good time. Jesus, you, you need to remember, like the people outside this, ro this room, they're, they're not really friendly towards you or towards us right now. They're the ones that wanted to kill you. So Jesus, this is, this is not right, like really a good time. And, and Jesus, we're not really in a good place. I mean, 
Peter, our leader, has just denied you three times a few days ago. He wasn't so strong. And the rest of us, we all fled. And so now you're telling, the, remember, we're the guys that ran away. You're telling us to go out and tell all those folks? Jesus, maybe when we get stronger, when we're back on our feet, maybe then we could take this mission. See, that's important for us to realize how they would have felt and what was going on. Because what it shows you is this. Going through hard times does not give us a pass when it comes to the mission. Right? Like, we can't say to Jesus, Jesus, like, you know, this is not a really good place for the mission to be done. I mean, Jesus, do you not know where we live? Some of the people that we work with, that we rub shoulders with, they're not really eager to hear about you. In fact, some of them are hostile towards you. So Jesus, it's not really a good place. And Jesus, we're not necessarily in a good place ourselves. It's been a hard time for us. We've been through a lot. So maybe when we get back on our feet, maybe when things settle down a little bit, maybe when we're stronger, then we could hear the mission. But we can't say that, can we? Because our mission was first given in hard times. Jesus knew that. He knew that then. He knows that now. So even in the hard times of life, he comes to us and says, I have a mission for you to do. In the worst of times. We say, okay, well then what is my mission? What, what exactly is he wanting us to do even in the worst of times? Well, that's what he tells us in verses 46 to 49. And that leads me to a second thing you want to know about your mission. You see, if you look with me at verse 46, one thing you will find that this mission that you have, you want to be clear on this, is that our mission is based on Jesus' death and resurrection. So let's build an understanding of our mission. And the first thing you need to know, given in hard times, but based on Jesus' death and resurrection. The mission you have is based on Jesus' death and resurrection. Look at verse 46. It says, he told them, this is what is written. The Christ, or the Messiah, will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. That's where he begins. He talks about his own death and his resurrection. Because the mission is based on Jesus' death and resurrection. In fact, get this. If that's not true, if Jesus didn't really die and rise again physically from the grave, you have no message and you have no mission. That's what the Apostle Paul said. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15, Paul says, If Christ is not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile, and we are proved to be false witnesses of God. Like, if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, then we are lying to people. We are misleading people. So it's pretty crucial that we are convinced that Jesus really did die and rise again. Your mission is based on Jesus' death and resurrection. So let me ask you a question. Are you convinced of that? Like in your soul, in your heart of hearts, are you convinced of the reality, the historical reality of Christ's death and resurrection? You'll never really get, get excited about your mission until you get clear on that. Now maybe you say, well, I kind of, I, I think I believe that. But, I mean, it wasn't there. I know that there are some people that try to debunk that. I, I know not everyone thinks that's true. Some people think it was kind of like a myth or a legend. 
I think I believe that. How, how can a person be really convinced on something that happened in the dusty realms of history 2,000 years ago? Well, you know, our passage here actually gives you some proof of the death and resurrection of Jesus that has helped Christians for centuries. There's some things in these verses that Christians have leaned on to help them come to that conviction of the reality of the death and resurrection of Christ. The proof runs along two lines. Let me show you. There are kind of two avenues of proof about Jesus' death and resurrection in these verses. First one you'll see in verse 46 is that the death and resurrection of Jesus was predicted by Scripture. One of the reasons we believe it is because it was predicted in advance by the Scriptures. Look at verse 46. You'll see it. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. See that he told them this is what is written. And you say, well, written where? We'll go back to verse 45 and you'll see. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So written in the scriptures. You say, well, what scriptures? We'll go back to verse 44 and you'll see. He told them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Jesus is saying to them, listen, my death and resurrection was predicted in the scriptures, specifically in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and the Psalms. Think about it. You read the law of Moses, the opening five books of the Bible, Genesis and the next five books. Those books talk about in kind of a pictorial way about the reality that was going to happen in Jesus. All the stuff about the sacrifice, about the lambs that were slain, were a picture that was pointing to the reality when Jesus would come and John the Baptist would see him and say, look, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's all based on what the Jews had known from the sacrifices, and they, they had been ready for that. So in the law of Moses, Jesus says it was also in the prophets. Prophets like Isaiah, who centuries before Jesus, in Isaiah chapter 53, talks about the death, the sacrificial death of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. And then in the same chapter, 53, he talks about how that same servant who dies somehow lives on after his death, predicts the death and resurrection. And then the Psalms, the Psalms. Read Psalm 22 and... It's a picture of the death of the Messiah. Read Psalm 16. It's a picture of the resurrection. So Jesus is saying one of the ways you can just hang on to the, the death and resurrection of Jesus is that it was predicted centuries before it happened in the scriptures. So that's the first line of proof. The second line of proof in, the, in our verses is that the death and resurrection of Jesus that was predicted by scripture was witnessed by skeptics. It was witnessed by skeptics. You can't miss the fact that these first disciples were skeptical when they heard the news, right? Verse 11, remember how we saw that? It said the word seemed like nonsense. And then if you look at verse 38, when Jesus talks to them, he says, Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? You know, we often pick on Thomas as doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. Thomas wasn't even here this night. It wasn't just doubting Thomas, it was doubting Matthew and doubting Peter and doubting Andrew and doubting Simon, doubting Bartholomew. They were all doubting. So these, these guys are skeptical, and yet Jesus turns them into witnesses. Verse 48, you are witnesses. They go from skeptics to witnesses. 
In fact, history tells us that these original disciples were so convinced of the resurrection of Jesus that almost all of them died a brutal death, a martyr's death, because they wouldn't give up their story. Now, you and I know enough about human, human nature. People don't die for what they know is a lie. And these guys were so convinced. They went from skeptics to witnesses. And one of the reasons we hang on to the reality of the resurrection is it was predicted in Scripture and witnessed by skeptics. And when you get clear on that, it starts to give you a mission that is filled with hope. Hope in the hard times. The resurrection of Jesus is the basis of our mission because it gives hope to people who are facing the most difficult things in their lives. Tell you what, I sure found that out over these last months. Many times I'd be sitting in the hospital or in the waiting room of the radiation there at the general. And I would strike up conversations with other, with other people who were waiting for their treatments. And I remember at least on a couple occasions, I had two different men tell me this. They said, I don't think I'm going to live through this. I think, I think the cancer is going to get me this time. One man told me, he said, they've given me no hope. They say I'm terminal. What do you say to somebody like that? Well, I was able to say, you know what? I, I have a, a, a hope that actually outlives death. And it's based on the fact that Jesus beat death. And he offers you life that extends beyond the grave. You see, this mission that we have is for the hardest of times because it gives the brightest of hopes. It's based on the resurrection. So let me ask you, are you convinced about that? It's part of your mission. Our mission, which was given in hard times, is based on the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, after you kind of get clear on that, you're ready to hear the next thing or the third thing that's true about our mission, about your mission, about my mission. The third thing I want you to see, verse 47, is this is that our mission is proclaiming repentance and faith in Jesus. Okay, this is what we do with the news of the resurrection of Jesus, is that we now go out and we are to proclaim repentance and faith in Jesus. Look at verse 47, you'll see it. Verse 46 ends, it says, He will rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name. See, our mission... Ask for people to respond. We don't just say, hey, here's a historical fact. Jesus died and was raised. We go out and say, that's a historical fact that calls for a very personal response. And the response that we are calling you to is a twofold response, or maybe you could say it's one response with two sides. We are calling people, verse 47, to repentance, that's the first thing, and faith, that's the second thing, right? We call them to repentance. What's that mean? Repentance just means a turnaround. It means you change. You change your mind. You change your ways. It's people specifically saying, I'm turning from the way I was headed, and I'm making an about face. And that leads to the second response, which is that of faith. You see how it says in verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. The Bible is very clear is that this thing called forgiveness of sins comes in Jesus' name or more specifically, by faith in Jesus' name. Like you have to turn from your sin, and then you trust in Christ. And when you do that, the Bible says God forgives you of your sins. 
And it all comes in Jesus' name. Now, let's just be honest with one another. That message is not necessarily in step with the pluralistic attitudes of our society. To go to people and say, do you know what uh, God is calling you to do? He's calling you to repent of your sins and trust in his son. And he'll give you forgiveness. That message doesn't work well in a society that says, pretty much whatever religious path you take is a good one, as long as it's the one you choose. We're called to say, well, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus actually said there was only kind of one way, and it was through him. It's repentance and faith in him. That gives you forgiveness. So we are told to tell that message. In fact, it's a message that is to be proclaimed. Look at verse 47. He uses the word preached here. And repentance and forgiveness of sin will be preached in his name. Now, please don't think that that means that the only people who can do the mission are pastors who get up on a platform and preach. The word preached there literally means to herald. It means to proclaim. It means to tell. It's not something you do in a church. It's something you do outside of a church. It's something that we do when we speak. That is the mission of the church, is to go out and proclaim the good news of repentance and faith in Jesus. Now, here's something I just want you to be clear on with me. There's a lot of discussion in our day about what is the mission of the church. A lot of discussion about that. Some people say that the mission of the church is social justice, that we should be about righting the wrongs of society. Other people say, well, the mission of the church is about compassion ministries, helping the hurting. Other people say, well, the mission of the church is cultural transformation. Now, all of those things are worthy things and biblically sanctioned things, but none of them is the mission of the church in its most crystal narrow form. The mission of the church is about proclaiming a message. The mission of the church is, Jesus says it, look at it. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. That was the mission he gave them. So do you know what that means? That means that a church can feed the hungry. A church can clothe the naked. A church can help the oppressed. It can free the prisoners. But if it doesn't proclaim the message of repentance and faith in Jesus, that church has not been faithful to the mission. And by the way, that comes down to you and me personally. It's not enough for you and me just to go in society and be good people, nice people, caring people. We should be. We should be. But that's not the whole mission. The mission has a verbal component to it. We can't just say, well, I live my faith. I'd say, for sure, for sure do that. Otherwise, you have no credibility. But Jesus would say, you've got to speak your faith. Repentance and forgiveness of sin will be proclaimed. So let me ask you, how are you doing when it comes to your mission? Are you doing that? Are you speaking? Are you looking for ways that you talk to people about their need to turn from sin and turn to Christ? That's your mission. I'm not making that up. Jesus said that. Some of you here today, here in this, you may have never personally receive that message. Some of you here today may need to take the step of actually turning, repenting, 
and trusting in Christ today because that's what we proclaim to you. If you're outside of Christ, you're kind of on the margins. If you've never really personally owned this, then this morning I'm saying to you, here's the message we have for you. It's like, turn from the sins that you have and say, Jesus, I, I don't, I'm done with that. I don't want to go that way. I'm trusting in you to forgive me, change me. If you've never done that today, can I say, believe the message, receive the gift. See, our mission was given in the hardest of times. And our mission, our mission is based on the death and resurrection of Jesus, and it involves proclaiming repentance and faith. But there's a fourth thing that you need to see. It also comes out in verse 47. There's a fourth thing. Look at how verse 47 ends. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. I'd put the fourth thing this way. Our mission is both local and global. Our mission is both local and global. You see that? It's local because it starts in Jerusalem. It starts right where you are. Now, just, just remember, wind, up, wind back a little bit, rewind. Remember Jerusalem, for these first disciples, that was the killing zone, right? I mean, that was not really a, a really friendly place, but that's where Jesus says, I want you to start right here, where three days ago, all the people were shouting to kill me. I'd like you to go back out there with those same people and you tell them repentance and faith in my name. Starts where you are. So for, for us, what does that mean? Well, it means that where you work is your Jerusalem. It's like God has given you that part of the world and said, this is part of your mission. Like, like, like you got this part, you got this wing, you got this sector. You know what that means? That means that where you live, that's part of your mission. Some of us are doing these prayer walks where you just walk your street and start praying for the people who live near you. Next Sunday in the bulletin, they'll show you a way how you can jump in on that. It's because we realize, like, God has put me here. Like, this street, he must be thinking this is part of my mission. If you're on a campus, that campus is your Jerusalem. How about this one? If you live in Gatineau, that's your Jerusalem. We're trying to launch a campus ministry over in Gatineau, and some of you need to wrestle with the fact of whether God is calling you to be part of that, because that is your Jerusalem, and you are on mission there. See, it starts where you are, but it doesn't end there. It's local, but it's also global. Look at verse 47. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, all nations. The Greek word for nations there is the word ethne, which gives us our word what? Ethnic. Jesus is talking about ethnic groups. He's talking about what we would call people groups. And he's saying, listen, the, the mission is not just done when you kind of work in your neighborhood and you work on your, your, your office area. The mission is not done until the message goes to all ethnic groups, all people groups. And today, this morning, as we sit here, there are thousands, thousands of people groups who have no engagement with the gospel. So let me ask you, is our mission done yet? It's not. In fact, one of the reasons we have a missions conference, which is starting this week, is because we never want to get to the place where out of sight means out of mind. There are people groups today, people, men and women, who God loves as much as he loves your children and my children. 
And there are people groups that are headed in mass to hell. And they don't even know the answer because nobody has told them. And one of the reasons we have a missions conference is because we believe that every once in a while we need to kind of be shaken a little bit to say, hey, do you, do you still get what Jesus is calling us to do? It's about the nations. It's about the ethnic group, the ethne. We're going to have Ajith Fernando and K.P. Yohannan. And I guarantee you, those men will stretch your soul and maybe break your heart. I hope you'll be here because it's part of your mission to care about the nations. So your mission has given you in hard times, so that's not a pass. And your mission is based on the resurrection of Jesus, and it involves proclaiming repentance and faith. It's local and global, but there's one last thing. Oh, you got to hang on to this. Because right now you may be thinking, this mission is too big for me. It's like, I, I don't think I can do all this. This is bigger than I am. And I don't know if that's the mission I'm having to opt out because I can't do that. Well, the fifth thing you need to know is incredibly encouraging. It's simply this. Your mission, our mission, is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 49. Actually, verse 48 says, You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit, right? Stay in the city until you get what the Father has promised, clothed with power from on high. That verse is very similar to Acts 1.8 that says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus says, look, I know you can't do this. I know this mission is bigger than you. I understand. Peter, I know you're a coward. A couple days ago, you denied you even knew me. And the rest of you men, I was there when you all ran away from me. I know what you're made of. So I'm going to give you help. I'm going to send you my spirit. The Father will promise that he's, he'll give you. And the Spirit of God will take ordinary people like you and empower you to do the mission I've given you even in your hard times, maybe especially in your hard times. The Spirit of God will come and use you when you are weak. For as Paul says, when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. Listen, I have found that over and over and over in these last months. I have found at times when I've been at my weakest, God has used that very weakness to open the door to talk to somebody about the hope that I'm hanging on to. You know what I've learned? People congratulate us in our successes, but they connect with us in our suffering. Have you figured that one out yet? They admire us in our successes. They congratulate us in our successes, but they connect with us in our suffering. It's when we are most vulnerable that we can say to them, look, I got nothing. I'm as afraid of this whole stuff as you are, but I got a hope. And I have a hope that is carrying me through this. And over and over again, we've had a chance to speak to people about hope. A hope that comes to ordinary people like us. And the Spirit of God gives power in our weakness to speak of his strength. Linda and I have been encouraged by the story of Johnny Erickson. You know her, she's been in a wheelchair for four decades. Listen to what Johnny had to say about how God used her weakness 
to be a doorway to giving people hope. Johnny says this, that's what I've been seeing this past month. She's just been diagnosed with breast cancer a while ago. So on top of being a paraplegic uh, she, or a quadriplegic, she is, now has cancer. She says, that's what I've been seeing this past month. Every x-ray technician, every nurse, every doctor, every secretary, every clinician, every person I meet in nuclear medicine and at the MRI, it's amazing how many opportunities I've been given to see hungry and thirsty people for Christ. I knew that was true before, but there seems to be something special that is accompanying this diagnosis. I'm just so amazed at people asking me, how can you approach this breast cancer with such confidence in a God who allows it? And I'm being given the chance to answer. Listen, some of you have been thinking that your hard times disqualify you from speaking to somebody about hope. You say, look, I'm kind of beat up right now. And you know what I would say to you? So were the disciples. So was I. But God wants to come by his spirit and use those very hard times as a doorway to people who need hope. It's part of your mission. God wants to move us from misery to mission. And as we let him do that, you know what happens? Somehow the worst of times get transformed into the best of times. But why don't you just take a moment to let settle in your soul this idea that Jesus has called you to a mission and he wants to use you to bring hope to other people who need hope. Oh, and in the worst of times, it can be the best of times. Why don't you talk to him privately? Let's pray together. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about online courses at Heritage College and Seminary, visit our website at discoverheritage.ca or visit our personal website at rickandlindareed.com.